Thank you, Dan. Give us a second here as the, as the kids and teachers. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, teachers, for uh, spending time with the students downstairs. Um, if you have ever wondered if maybe you uh, have a usefulness to the church, we, I can guarantee you you do. In our uh, kids and student ministries, they are always looking for uh, willing, helpful uh, people to come and spend time with them. They're phenomenal. I don't know, if, if you were not with us uh, last week when we had our family worship weekend, the kids led their prayer time, and it was some of the most incredible prayer time I've been a part of uh, ever, listening to them praise God, pray to God, and, uh, and ask for him uh, to bless this church. And so our leaders are some of our youngest members, and so, and I think Jesus uh, shows us that a lot. So, welcome, good morning. Um, it is a pleasure and an honor to be with you guys. Uh, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, or if you are new with us today, my name is Brad Bartlett. Uh, I am associate pastor here at Restoration. Uh, my wife, Caitlin, and our family just got here back in January, um, so we've been here just a little over a month, and it's been a phenomenal, phenomenal time. We have just been so blessed by you guys. Um, we're originally from Kansas City, where I was on staff at a church uh, in Kansas City that has been praying for you guys. I just talked to one of our uh, pastors in Kansas City the other day, and they told me that they actually have been praying for us. Um, and so know that there are partnerships all across the country uh, when we do gospel ministry together. And part of that is Matt. Matt is not here, obviously. That's why second-string quarterback is pulled in uh, today. Matt is actually in Carolina, South Carolina. He's actually uh, uh, speaking and teaching and preaching at a church planning conference. They're really just telling the story of this church, telling the story of restoration, and um, helping that church equip their people and the people of the churches in that area to church plant, to share the gospel, and do what we have been talking about in the book of Acts this whole time. And so um, be in prayer for him today uh, as he is speaking and teaching some breakout sessions and that basically the, the joy and the passion for planting churches would uh, take root uh, over there and that we could be a part of that and that we could build strong partnerships with them. So that being said, we are continuing today uh, in Acts, Acts chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go ahead and open those up to Acts chapter 14 whether that is your physical Bible or Bible on your phone. Um, we're going to be reading a lot of scripture today. We'll be traveling through this chapter together. Um, and I'm excited because we're going to be uh, basically opening up what the missionary life, the missionary journey, and the missionary experience looks like for believers and followers of Jesus. But before we get there, I will ask you this. When was the last time, think through, kind of last time, you experienced or fell in love with something or someone or something happened in your life that you just could not help yourself from sharing. And I'm talking about something that just captured all of your thoughts and your being and something that was just so incredible that no matter what conversation you were in, whether it was with a best friend or a complete stranger at a gas station or a coffee shop, eventually you knew that the conversation would get there. What is that for you? What is that for you? For me and for Caitlin and our family, um, it is, and we're uh, pretty unashamed of this, uh, it's Harry Potter. So I know uh, we're in church, and sometimes, uh, depending on what background you grew up in, you may or may not have been uh, present with the Harry Potter craze that happened uh, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. 
Uh, I was raised in a family that was like, yeah, sure, read it. Go ahead. Just keeps you busy and keeps you out of trouble. Um, and so I uh, first started reading the Harry Potter series when the third book came out. And from the moment I read it, I was hooked. I loved it. And when the movies came out, I fell in love with just the world building and the stories and just how it, there was a part of the Harry Potter story that connected to every single part of my life, it seemed like probably because it was this teenage angst and I thought everything was about me, um, that I was special. But every conversation that I would have, and still to this day, Caitlin and I can agree on this, we are drawn into talking about Harry Potter. And uh, we have a couple friends back in Kansas City uh, that she actually, uh, her name is Brittany, she was, the, she was in charge of uh, putting on these events for the company she worked at. And one of the events had a Harry Potter theme. And she asked us, she was like, hey, have you guys ever like, uh, read these Harry Potter books or watch these movies because I have to put on this event that kind of has a theme for Harry Potter and I was like oh yeah get ready and so we like pulled out our compendium and like walked them through and by the end of this period of time where we kind of walked through the, the books and told them the story and watched the movies together Kayla and I had converted Jared and Brittany to be Harry Potter believers and I remember we finished that final that final movie together and I thought to myself Wow, Caitlin, imagine if we, like, shared the gospel of Jesus this well. And people, like, would become converts. And we shared the gospel. And it was funny, but in a sense, it's true, right? Because when it comes to sharing the gospel, there are a lot of times that we think, I'm not well-equipped enough. I'm not quite ready to do that. That seems scary. But there are times when something really weird and quirky about us, we are unashamed to share it with every single person we meet. We will shout it from the rooftops. And if you dare to compare Harry Potter as better or worse than Lord of the Rings, we will fight you in the streets over it. And so, all that to say, this is the idea we see when we get into the book of Acts, right? People in a historical context, in a historical place, and actual events in lives were so radically changed by the gospel of Jesus that nothing would stop them from spreading it. Nothing would stop them from sharing the gospel. So if you are with us for the very first time, welcome. We're excited that you're here. I will warn you that we preach expositorily through books here at Restoration. So if you are here for the very first time, you might be dropping straight into the book of Acts right in the middle. So I like to do something we call church with manners, which is kind of catching you up to where we have been bringing you along and kind of saying, here's the grand story we've been telling so far, and then here's where we're at today. So the book of Luke and the book of Acts are written by Luke. So Luke was a doctor um, who was a very learned, very well-trained, uh, equipped physician who also took it upon himself to write basically the historical account and narrative of Christianity to the time that he lived. And so if you open up the book of Luke, you'll see he says, Dear Theophilus, I am writing this so that you can be sure of the certainty of what you have heard. Luke took it upon himself to say, there are people out there who are starting to engage with this Christianity movement, this thing called the way, this guy named Jesus, this homeless wandering rabbi who, who was killed for his beliefs and apparently rose from the dead. And Luke says, I want to make sure that you have complete faith that who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what he is doing through his people is accurate and true. 
And so Luke writes these two accounts, basically part one and part two. The book of Acts, or the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is the story of Jesus from his birth, his life, his ministry, his teachings, his death, and ultimately his resurrection and ascension. And at the end of the book of Luke, there's this break where Jesus is appearing to his disciples, having resurrected from the dead, something no one had done before. And then we jump over the book of John into the book of Acts. And Acts is basically part two. Where is this going to go? What is going to happen now that this resurrected Jesus has come? And for the disciples, they believed that this Jesus was back. That Jesus had resurrected from the dead and now he was going to take this kingdom and restore it to the Jewish people. And he would kick out the Greeks and he would kick out the Roman rulers and he would establish this uh, amazing city of Zion, this kingdom that they'd been waiting for for hundreds if not thousands of years. And within the first chapter of the book of Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus gathers his disciples and one of them asks them, okay, so when are you going to uh, establish the kingdom? When are you going to get down to business? You know, you've, you've died and you've raised, now what? And Jesus radically changes their perspective and says, actually, I am going to the Father. And it's good that I go because I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. But not I alone will establish this kingdom, but I'm going to use you to do it. And so in the very beginning of the book of Acts, we see this verse, in verse uh, or chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus giving this mandate, this mission, this uh, task to his disciples that will become part of the entirety of the book of Acts and ultimately lead us to where we're at today. So Jesus says, but you will receive power. This is him saying when he's going to go to the Father. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus is basically telling his disciples, listen, this gospel is not going to just be here. This kingdom is not just going to be in this place. In fact, it's going to explode and I'm going to use you to do it. So... Last week, Matt kind of gave us this opening spot about what does it look like to be a missionary? What does it look like to be an ambassador for the kingdom of God in our lives, the lives of the disciples then, but our lives now? And Matt told us last week, if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it, but he said, God uses people, everyday people, often the least of these, the ones you would never expect to fulfill his mission. If you looked at the disciples And all that they did, you never would have put them on the all-star team to preach the gospel. And ultimately, that the mission of God, the mission of God is the redemption and restoration of God's people for their good and his glory. So God is at work within the life of his people to bring redemption and restoration and healing to the nations, to the entire world. And that mission is not just for the disciples then, but is continuing on today. So, if you've read the book of Acts, you know that basically that Acts 1-8 mandate took place. It started in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit came on the disciples at Pentecost. They began to speak the gospel in a variety of languages they'd never heard or spoken before. It begins to spread out as persecution comes. Every time the rulers, whether it was the Jews or the Roman rulers in Jerusalem, tried to snuff out this little movement for Jesus, it would spread and spread and spread. It would just keep on going, um, ultimately leading to the death of the first deacon, Stephen, in Acts 7. Stephen preaches this gospel message 
telling everyone around him what it means to follow Jesus and the salvation that can come in Jesus' name. And they kill him for it. They kill him. And they stone him. And standing by him as stones are being hurled upon Stephen's body and killing him is a man named Saul, who was a leading Pharisee. And it says that Saul approved of his execution, of his murder. And then it just takes a few pages later, we see Paul, Saul, who will be called Paul later. Saul is traveling on the road, given a mission by the leaders of Jerusalem to capture these Christians who have fled after Stephen dies. And on the way, Saul encounters Jesus. And Saul is struck by the reality of the risen Savior, Jesus, and nothing will be the same. This is the moment when Saul experiences that, that thing, that, that life-altering experience that he can never, ever stop talking about. And it'll be his message. The message of Jesus will follow him for the rest of his life. And so Saul takes you know, this new life change experience and he goes off to uh, spend some time basically training and learning and recovering from this life-altering experience. And ultimately, the church begins to grow in the meantime. Believers are scattered across the area and this little hub in this city called Antioch begins to grow. And Antioch becomes this church that becomes a powerhouse for the gospel. You know, Matt said last week, we long at Restoration to be a church like the church of Antioch. That from humble roots and with just a a scattering of average everyday people, changed by the radical grace of God, we become a church that is sending the gospel message out through our people and changing the world. And so a little bit later in Acts, this man named Barnabas who's called Barnabas because he's an encourager, is sent by the disciples in Jerusalem to go check out what is going on in Antioch. What is happening? And Barnabas gets up there, sees what's going on in Antioch, and says, this is crazy. This is unbelievable. I have to get Saul over here to help me figure this out. And so he gets Saul, he brings him back to uh, to Antioch, and they begin spending time with these, these disciples and building this church. And it's from Antioch that we get to where we're at today. Antioch, which is, let me see if I can get here. Antioch, if you can see my little pointer here. Antioch is kind of right up here. If you're thinking about Jerusalem and Judea, they've all spread and they've traveled up. And Antioch becomes this major hub for Christianity and missions. And so they decide, Antioch, to send Paul and Barnabas to go share the gospel with what they at the time would have said was the ends of the earth. Because the gospel has reached Jerusalem, it's reached Judea and Samaria, and now it's time to go to what they would have, would have referred to then as the ends of the earth. And so with praying and fasting, they send Paul and Barnabas off to share the gospel message of hope and restoration. And so last week, we talked about how Paul and Barnabas set sail. They reached Cyprus. They got up to Perga and ultimately landed in Antioch and Pisidia, or Pisidian Antioch, as your Bible might say. And it's here that we begin to see this missionary pattern begin to emerge of preaching the gospel, sharing the message, people responding to this amazing message of hope, and then ultimately beginning to rebel against it. And so Paul and Barnabas experience persecution, but they remain. But then ultimately there comes a time where they have to to turn the page and continue on. And so if you read at the end of chapter 13, it says this. 
This is what the Lord has commanded us. This is what Paul says in verse 47. This is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this message, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the entire region. But the Jews incited the prominent God-fearing women and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We take a pause when we read scripture, right? It's important when we study the word of God to constantly be looking for ways that the author's original handling of the text when they wrote these letters and these books, they often would put things in there that would guide the readers to better, deeper understandings. And there's a part in here in Paul and Barnabas' response that takes us back to Luke's gospel. And it's when it says, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet against them and went on to Iconium. That word, shaking the dust off their feet, it's not just there because that's just something they did. This is part of Jesus' model for sharing the gospel. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to go prepare the way for the king. Prepare the way for the kingdom of God. And it, he tells their, or Jesus tells his disciples when he sends them out and prepares them, he says, Don't carry a money bag, a traveling bag or sandals. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't greet anyone along the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on them. But if not, it'll return to you. Remain in that same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town and they welcome you, eat the things they set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. When you enter any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. But know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Paul and Barnabas are modeling this missionary gospel-sharing methodology that Jesus instilled in his disciples from day one that says, take the gospel to places. Go prepare the way. Proclaim to the ends of the earth that the kingdom of God has come, but discern enough to know when you've preached your message and it is not taking root to go, to go. Shake off the dust and say, know this, though you've rejected us, the kingdom of God has come near. And this is a message that will continue on and on and on through the remainder of the book of Acts. So Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet at Pisidian Antioch and they say, all right, but know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus Christ has come near. And so Paul and Barnabas head out of Pisidian Antioch. Whoops, let me go back a little bit. Nope, a little bit too far. They go here, here, here. Paul and Barnabas take off from Pisidian Antioch and they bail out and they head down to Iconium. Now, Iconium 
basically is the next town on the path of what would have been known as the Via Sebaste, which is a Roman road. Um, you know, the, the disciples say, hey, let's take advantage of Rome's uh, amazing ability to build these infrastructures and roads. And they take off down this commercial highway. And they travel along this highway until they reach the town of Iconium. Iconium was probably, according to archaeologists, a more cosmopolitan town. Uh, up here in this area of Galatia, up here in the ends of the earth. Um, It was enough of a well-known town, and there were enough Jews in the region that they had a synagogue. And so Paul and Barnabas arrive to Iconium, and this is what we read. Read with me in uh, chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue, as usual, and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time, spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding countryside. And there they continued preaching the gospel. So Iconium is kind of business as usual. Paul and Barnabas arrive. They find this place that they know off the bat they can engage, the Jewish synagogue, people that would, one, speak the similar language, and two, would have an understanding, at least a basic understanding, of the gospel message they're about to preach. And so Paul and Barnabas go to Iconium, they go in the synagogue, and they begin to preach. And it says, if you notice, in verse 1, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. They spoke in such a way. Luke just gives us that tiny little bit, and it makes us ask, what does that mean? What does he mean when he says they spoke in such a way? I would imagine the way that they spoke was such a way that they saw in Acts 13, that we studied last week, that, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of the universe, has come, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death for sin that we each deserved, that he was buried dead in a tomb for three days, and that miraculously he rose again. And not just that he rose, but he ascended to the Father finishing his work, commissioning the disciples to spread the gospel of salvation, and that he will come again. And within that story is the offense. The offense when Paul would say, you Jews who disbelieved, you crucified the king of Israel. You put to death the Messiah. And not just have you put him to death, but you have turned away from the message of Jesus And behold, the door is open to the Gentiles. God's miraculous rescue redemption plan has opened the door wide open to the Gentile world. And so it's such a way, they speak in such a way that these disciples or these uh, men and women and children in Iconium believe, both Jews and Gentiles. Christians, believers, are born again. We begin to see the beginnings of this community of believers start to take place. And then just like in Pisidian Antioch, and just like we will see for the rest of Paul's missionary experience, persecution is at the door. 
So we cannot be surprised that when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that offense comes quickly. And so in Iconium, we get this missionary methodology. We get this MO for what it's like when we share the gospel. Paul and Barnabas determine and engage a space. They saw the synagogue. They knew they had an open door as strangers in this land to share the gospel. They speak boldly, but they trust God to move. It says they, they spoke in such a way, but once the Jews and Gentiles stirred up and poisoned the minds of the believers, they stayed, this is verse 3, they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord. Who, the who being the Lord, testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. When persecution comes, when we share a message in a space and we are not welcomed, whether it's by just not listening or literal, physical pushing away, we remain. And for us in our culture, our independent, we don't want to offend you, this is weird, I don't like this culture, this is radical. They remained. They remained and trusted that God would honor their staying by using them to speak and work boldly. But with that comes persecution. So we should not be surprised when we share the message of Jesus, the message of salvation that says, turn from your sinful ways and turn to Jesus and submit to him as Lord. We should not be surprised that that brings anger, frustration, confusion, fear, anxiety, because we're telling people, right, that they have to turn away from the things they love. They have to destroy their idols. They have to destroy what they worship and worship the king and not just worship him, but submit to him as Lord. This is the most wildly anti-human sinful nature message we can preach. So it makes sense that persecution is going to come. And then ultimately discern with the Holy Spirit in prayer and fasting when it's time to shake the dust of that town off your feet. And you'll notice that it comes after remaining. This doesn't mean the first sign of of, uh, persecution or the first sign of opposition or the first sign of being ignored or feeling awkward that you immediately shake the dust and leave. Paul and Barnabas waited it out long enough for the Lord to let them know, hey, guess what? It's time to go. And so we'll see this again as they go. As Paul and Barnabas shake the dust off their feet of Iconium, Knowing that the word of the Lord has come to this place and that believers have been born again, they head off towards Lystra and Derby. So in Lystra, let's continue reading verse 8 of chapter 14. In Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, People, why are you doing these things? We are people just like you. 
And we are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what was good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they went over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derby. A lot is happening in Lystra. If Iconium was just this little snapshot of we showed up, we shared, they didn't like it, we left, Lystra, Luke kind of pulls the curtain back and says, let's talk about what it looks like very vividly when we share the gospel with the people who have never heard the good news before. So unlike Iconium, Lystra was probably more of a rural town. It's about 18 miles south of Iconium. Um, it's believed that it's probably a little bit poorer or lower socioeconomic because it doesn't mention there's a synagogue. In fact, Paul, it appears as though Paul and Barnabas just go straight into the open air market and begin to preach the gospel because there's nowhere for them to, to preach. And they're in there, and Paul, as we see, notices this man laying on the side by probably propped up against a building who has never walked before in his life. And as Paul is preaching this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the story of how God is redeeming all of the world, he keeps noticing this person, looking intently at him. And for some reason, in Paul's discernment of the Holy Spirit, he notices this man stands out. God is calling him to notice this man among all the people who were likely gathering around to listen. And so Paul looks at the man who's never walked a day in his life and proclaims, stand up and walk. And in that moment, while we could, we could kind of flesh out the entirety of, of Paul doing miracles and God using him in mighty ways and all that thing, and we could do a whole sermon about that, ultimately it appears as though Luke is writing in this story to show us this is what happens when the kingdom of God has come near. People who have been unable to walk since birth are restored. Redemption and restoration for their good and God's glory. And in this moment, the people lose their minds. And rightfully so, I imagine if we saw somebody who had never walked before suddenly get up and start walking around, we would, one, either freak out and wonder what was going on, or two, we'd probably think, eh, probably, this is probably fake. But for the, the people of Lystra, this was not unusual. It was very unusual for, the, for a man who had never been born to stand up and walk, but it was not unusual for miraculous things to be heard of happening in the area. So when the people of Lystra say, the gods have come among us, Zeus and Hermes, your Bible might say Mercury, when these gods have come among us, they're actually referring to a historical thing that happened. This, if you can see this painting up here, this is the story of Bacchus and Philemon. Bacchus and Philemon are these, uh, this man and woman, this elderly couple who reportedly lived in a town not far from Lystra. And one day these two strangers showed up to town 
and finding no one who was willing to take them in and care for them, finally found uh, Bacchus and Philemon, who welcomed them into their home. And when they, were, when they sat down and began to eat, they realized that this was Zeus and Hermes, the gods, have come down among us. And because of Bacchus and Philemon being the only ones who would welcome them into their homes, reportedly Zeus said, I'm going to destroy the city. I'm going to destroy the city because of the sinfulness of these people. And ultimately, Zeus and Hermes led Bacchus and Philemon away. They destroyed the city with a great flood. And then, for some reason, out of thanks for obeying them, he turned Bacchus and Philemon into a tree. So they turned into a tree, and that was kind of the end of the story. So, not a great ending for Bacchus and Philemon, but this story would have circulated among the people who were very aware of the gods acting in their world. And so that's why they say, the gods have come among us. If we, don't ref- if we don't begin to give homage and pay homage and give sacrifices and worship these two men who have just healed this man, they're going to destroy our city. At best, they're going to turn us into a tree. And so they just start throwing stuff at them. And in the moment, Paul cries out and says, no, 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 listen, stop, stop. What you're doing is not right. We are men just like you. We are men just like you. And in fact, you are so close to understanding it's who God is that we have come to share the message. And so once again in Lystra, Paul and Derby share the gospel message that it is not Zeus. It's not Hermes. It's not this pantheon of Roman or Greek gods who give you food and water and good times and joy and happiness and wine. But in fact, it is Yahweh, the creator of ...of the universe who has come. And so they tear their clothes in humility... ...and Paul reaches into their cultural understanding and says... ...listen, it's not Zeus, it's Yahweh. And let me tell you about this. But the people are so caught up and so offended by the story... ...and that their entire understanding of the cosmos... ...is so radically being altered and changed... That they lose their minds just in time for the Jews to show up. And they show up, they take advantage of the confusion, and basically turn the mob against Paul and stone him. Imagine with me, just for a moment, Paul, as he is being stoned, had to have remembered the moment Stephen cried out from the ground, giving up his life for God. Paul thinking, how ironically incredible is the gospel that I would be in the same place as Stephen. And so people of Lystra stone Paul enough that they think he's dead, drag him out, throw him out in the street outside the city, and go back to their business. And then miraculously we read, the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went back into town. Imagine with me, if you were to go to a place, if I was to go to Noble Coffee tomorrow and start sharing the gospel with somebody and all the people in the coffee started throwing their coffee beans at me, so much so that it knocked me out and and apparently I was dead and then they threw me over across the street towards Primeval Brewing and they were like, he's dead and they went back to drinking their lattes. Would you get up and go back? Or would you say, nope, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and bail out of here because this is ridiculous. But Paul, again, 
shows us that the missionary mandate is that we remain until God says to go. And it says that Paul goes back and there were believers and disciples that were encouraged. So, in Lystra we see as missionaries we must be abundantly clear about the true gospel of Jesus. There will be times where we're, we are taking a gospel message that is so radically opposed to the culture that people will either try to, to throw it out or to combine it with their worldviews. But in fact, we must say, no, it is not Zeus. No, it is not Hermes. It is Yahweh. It is God. It is the God Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, who has come to give you salvation in his name alone. And that we serve a God of miracles, but we are not the God of miracles, right? We serve a God who could use us at any moment to heal a man born lame. That we could be stoned to death and still get up and go back into the city and survive. But Paul and Barnabas show us the humility that says, no, It's not about me. Don't worship me. Worship God alone. And finally, the message may cost us everything. Lystra shows us very vividly that Paul received such a beating and a stoning that it's going to follow him for the rest of his life. And we'll see this this idea of pain and suffering in Paul's life continue throughout Acts and his letters in the New Testament. The message may cost us everything. So the question is, is it worth it to you? Is it worth it to you to go back to Lystra? So finally, we wrap up this this short section here. Paul and Barnabas have gone to Iconium. They've gone to Lystra. And after they go back in and he spends some time with the disciples, Paul and Barnabas leave for Derbe. We pick up in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel in that town, Lystra, and made many disciples, or in, in Derbe... They made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidian Antioch and came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. And after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas go to Derby, And apparently it was either super successful or... Business as usual, because Luke doesn't go much into detail, except that we know Timothy is from Derby, And so at some point, this relationship begins to be built between Paul and Timothy's family. We'll see this later on in 1 Timothy. But they go to Derby, they make many disciples, and then Luke gives us this return journey. They go back through the cities that they visited before. And they do a couple of things. They spend time with the disciples doing soul care. When I say soul care, I mean they spend time encouraging them, praying with them, walking with them through their trials and tribulations that they're going through. 
Because Paul and Barnabas left these believers in these towns where, where basically riots had broken out. So surely they were feeling that fear and anxiety that came from being a new Christian and equipping them to go forth in the gospel. They're doing leadership development. Paul and Barnabas are, are putting elders in place, right? So not just saying, hey, you guys are doing great. Good job. Keep it up. Keep doing your thing. I'll write you a couple letters later on. You can read those. And goodbye. Paul and Barnabas select men, qualified men that they name elders, to lead the church. And while we could go through an entire sermon on why we do elders, and we have elders here at Restoration, I think a pastor named Jeremy Rennie put this the best way. When it comes to elders, basically... A church should be able to direct a believer to an elder and say, do you want to know what a real Christian should be like? Look at this elder. Look at this elder. That's what Paul is saying. I'm leaving men in your place to lead you and guide you through the times to come. I cannot stay because I have to go back, but I'm going to leave you with leaders that will equip you, do soul care, encourage, strengthen. And finally, they go back to Antioch and they report and they celebrate. There's a lot that we can unpack, like I said, in what Paul and Barnabas do. But ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, so what does this mean for us? What are these three short little episodes that are packed with so much good gospel ministry What do we leave this room today and do with this? First, have you found something worth giving everything for? That's the question you must ask yourself this morning. Have you so fallen in love with the Jesus of the Gospels that you are willing to give your life to spread the word? If it is easy enough for me to share my thoughts about Harry Potter and how it connects and what, ver- or what chapter of what book and what uh, scene of what movie is my favorite. How much more should I share the gospel of Jesus with people? Because this is salvation. This is good news. This is redemption and restoration for people's good. The lame will walk. The sick will be healed. The dead will rise for eternity. Have you found something That if you were to be stoned and left for dead in the streets, you would go back, not once, but twice, because it's important enough for them to know who Jesus is. Have you found that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? Second, where are you engaging? We've been talking about this idea for a while now, engaging spaces, As Matt has said before, it's just going to places that you normally go every day and just going with the eyes of a missionary. And now we've seen what it looks like when a missionary goes to engage a space. And so now that you know what engaging looks like and you know what happens, now's the test. Are you really engaging your space? Are you actually engaging your space? Because if you're engaging a space for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's going to look a lot like what we've read today. Joy, gladness, 
redemption, salvation, persecution, offense, fleeing, returning. So are you engaging your space? Use Acts 14 as a litmus test, a temperature gauge to say, am I actually truly engaging this space, Lord? And what more do I need to do? Do I need to remain or do I need to shake the dust off my feet? And finally, does Restoration Church look like the church of Acts? Particularly, are we in Antioch that we are sending men and women and children out to share the gospel in places and then welcoming them back to share the good news. As Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch, they could have gone back to Jerusalem, but instead they go back to Antioch and they share the gospel. They share what has happened in these cities at the ends of the earth. And as it says at the end, at the end of chapter 14, after they arrived and gathered the church in Antioch together. They reported everything God had done, and that he had opened a door of faith. And they spent considerable time with the disciples. They celebrate, they listen, they rejoice, and they strategically plan for what's next. What is next? Is that what Restoration Church looks like? I think it is. But I think we've got a lot to do for Noblesville. But we're on a good start. We're on a good start. So those are the three questions I have for you. Have you found something worth giving all for? Have you found a place to engage with the gospel? And do we together rejoice and respond in this way? So, we're going to take a moment to respond. And as we respond, I want you to start thinking about some of these questions. Ponder it. Pray in this moment that God will reveal to you, is this true about me? And if not, Lord, help me to know, because there is no condemnation. Doing this is not something you are demanded of. It's something you're invited to do. Have I fallen in love with Jesus? Have I found a place to share it? And do we look like a church that shares the gospel? And so what we're going to do now as we finish out, we're going to respond. And we respond in a couple of ways. If you're new with us, we respond by repenting. This biblical idea of, of looking internally and questioning in our hearts where we're at with God. And pleading and praying that God would reveal to us how we need to return to him. How we can find restoration and redemption. Not only do we repent, but we remember. To my left and my right, there's wine, juice, and bread. We actively take communion every week because we want to remember the sacrifice of Jesus. A sacrifice so worthwhile that Paul and Barnabas were willing to give their lives on the streets to share the salvation of Jesus. So, if you're with us and you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith in him as Lord, we'll have a time here soon where you can come forward and break the bread, take the juice or the wine back to your seat. And when you're ready, take that. If you're joining us today and you are not a believer, you would not call yourself a believer, that's great. We're glad you're here. We want to worship with you and encourage you and equip you and share this gospel with you, but this meal is not for you. Not yet. The day will come where you will share this with us when you place your faith in the Lord Jesus.
And then finally, after we repent, we remember we're going to rejoice together. We're going to rejoice by singing that God has opened a door to the Gentiles, that God has opened a door to our friends, our family, to Noblesville, to Indiana, to the United States, to the world, that the gospel is going out through us. And we'll sing that together by worshiping God. And so here in a moment, I will pray. We'll remember. We'll rejoice. And then we will leave this place empowered to take the gospel forward. Pray with me. Father God, we are thankful to gather in your home. God, as Annie said this morning in Psalm 23, as he prayed so powerfully, not only are we, a, are we sheep of the good shepherd Jesus Christ, but we are also servants in the house of the king of the universe. In this room, together, God, we are part of your kingdom. May we rejoice knowing that our sins have been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. God, may this time of remembrance honor and glorify you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen.